Eric Barker, who lived from 1869 to 1952, was a missionary from Great Britain who had spent over 50 years in Portugal preaching the gospel, often under very adverse conditions. During World War II, the situation became so critical that he took the advice to send his wife and eight children to England for safety. His sister and her three children were also evacuated on the same ship. Barker remained behind to conclude some mission matters. And the Sunday after Barker's loved ones had left, he stood before the congregation and he said to them, quote, I've just received word that all my family have arrived safely home, unquote. And then he proceeded with the service as usual. Later, the full meaning of his words became known to the people. As he had been handed a wire just before the meeting, informing him that a submarine had torpedoed the ship that they were on and everybody on board had drowned. Barker knew that all of those that were on board were believers and the knowledge that his family was enjoying the bliss of heaven enabled him to live above his circumstances in that particular service in spite of his overwhelming grief. What enabled him to live above those circumstances? What was it that enabled him to cope with the unbearable and overwhelming grief that threatened to rip his life apart? And if we could somehow get a grip on what he had, maybe we could handle some of the storms that we face day in and day out. And we've all heard the message before, right? A thousand times, Christians should be living above their circumstances. Don't worry, be happy. Is that right? Tell that to the husband of three girls that just lost his wife to cancer. Tell that to the woman who just had her second miscarriage in three years. Tell it to the guy who's already spending next week's paycheck on this week's necessities. Tell it to the 21 Coptic Christians who were paraded down the beach knowing that they were about to lose their lives for their faith at the hands of ruthless terrorists. How do we learn to cope? How can we have peace of mind in a world gone nuts? The answer can be found, believe it or not, on something, in something that we often see plastered on the back of minivans, usually loaded with screaming hyperactive children. It's bumper sticker theology. You've seen it before. It goes like this. No God... No peace, no God, no peace. That's what missionary Eric Barker clung desperately to after he had heard the news about his family. You see, Barker knew that everyone on board that ship was a believer, as I said earlier, in Jesus Christ. And the knowledge that at that very moment his family was in heaven, in the presence of Christ, enabled him to go on and preach that sermon in spite of his intense grief. That knowledge didn't remove the pain from him. It took away the despair. His stability was not rooted in a quaint worldly saying like, don't worry, be happy. Rather, it was grounded in the timeless truth of the fact that he knew God and therefore he could know peace. I don't think there's a single one of us in this room that wouldn't want to know the secret to maintaining peace of mind through the storms of life. Aren't you sick of being a victim of your circumstances? We all want and need peace in our lives. You might say, but I know Christ is my Savior and I still worry and experience turmoil inside of my heart all the time. And it might be that you need to take a step back and actually look at 
how you're applying what you know about God and whether or not you really do know God. Do pastors really ever say that? Question their congregation as to whether they really do know God? If there was anyone that could teach us something about maintaining peace of mind in the storms of life, it has to be the Apostle Paul. Tucked away in a Roman prison, abandoned by friends, unable to personally go and help deal with the problems that he was dealing with with the Philippian church, having his name dragged through the mud by false teachers and not being able to defend himself, I would imagine that he must have experienced just a tad bit of anxiety under the circumstances. However, in the midst of all that, it seems he had a pretty settled heart, pretty settled mind, a peace of mind that was beyond our understanding, beyond what you and I would expect if anyone was qualified to teach us the right stuff on being at peace in spite of all the junk that's going on in our lives, I think he was. And so he does. Basically, he boils it down to two things in the text we're going to look at today. Having the right attitude and acting in the right way. Those two things. Pretty simple, huh? Yeah. Look at Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. We're only going to cover 4 through 7 this morning, but I'll read them. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, what? Rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. See, there's a cause and effect relationship involved here for the Christian. And Paul, like Eric Barker, knew exactly what that cause and effect relationship was. And the first thing that he launches out with for us is that maintaining the right attitude brings the peace of God to guard us. That's in verses 4 to 7. That's what we're going to look at this morning. In a staccato style, Paul rips off four rounds of commands here in, this, in these verses. And just as if he stepped in with an AK-47 and started firing, the first shot jolts us into attention. In the middle of all the pain, all the suffering, and the unfairness of life, Paul's first command is be joyful. Be joyful. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say it, rejoice. And we're all reading this, and they're all reading this, and they're probably saying, come on, Paul, are you serious? Are you kidding right now? How in the world can we be joyful when everything around us is pressing in on us, pressing us into the pit of depression? But Paul's serious. In fact, he knows this command will be so unbelievable to us and to them that he repeats it twice. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And sometimes the storms of life make it impossible for us to be happy in our circumstances. But notice that Paul never said, nor did he ever command us to be happy. Happy. I love that song. But that's not what he's saying. 
He said, quite literally, be rejoicing. And contrary to the mantra that we hear repeated in countless Christian circles, he did not say, be rejoicing in your circumstances. We hear that all the time, don't we? Oh, rejoice in your circumstances. Be above your circumstances. Don't be under the circumstances. Rejoice in them. What did Paul say here? Be rejoicing how? In the Lord. In the Lord. Now, there's a grand difference between those two things, isn't there? Happiness that rises and falls with the ever-changing tides of life is shallow. It's surface emotion. But the joy that is immersed in the life of Jesus Christ has depth. It has stability. And ultimately, it has true joy. Picture a massive hurricane raging over the ocean. On the surface of the sea, the violent winds whip the water into giant waves. It creates a scene of havoc and chaos. Yet, a mere 25 feet below the surface, the waters are clear and calm. And the fish there go on living their lives totally unaware of the thunderous tumult just above them. Here's the thing. Where there is depth, there is peace in the Christian life. Dallas Willard defined joy this way. Joy is a pervasive sense of well-being. Joy is a pervasive sense of well-being. It's a pervasive sense based on the realization of how things really are in the kingdom of God which is in our midst through the truth of who we are in Jesus Christ. Is that right? Let me say that again, just so you'll get it. It's a pervasive sense of well-being based on the realization of how things really are in the kingdom of God, which is in our midst through the truth of who we are in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 17, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. He wasn't just blowing smoke in our face, was he? What things was he speaking to us? What things was he talking about? These things I have spoken to you. Well, actually, that was in John 15 that he made those words, that, that statement. And in John 15, the things that he was speaking to people was the fact that he was the true vine, our source of everything. For apart from him, we can do nothing, Jesus said, correct? Everything we need in life is found in the true vine, Jesus Christ. And if we abide in him, if we dwell in him, if we press into him and live deeply in him, really live in him, joy, Jesus says, is the final word. Full joy. That's how Paul could write in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10 that in the midst of some very, very trying times in his life, even as he was facing the threat of death, he could write these words, I am sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Those two things seem so far apart. But that's the idea of a pervasive sense of well-being. It is, as Dallas Willard continues, a realization of what's really going on in the world under God's sovereign rule. Are you getting a little picture of that? True joy cuts through everything. Even to the point that we can recognize and anticipate that the, our moment of passage from this earth into eternity with Christ will be one of great Joy. You feel that? Now, there's a person that knows the full joy of Christ. You ever know a person like that? That couldn't wait to pass from this world into the next? It's incredible. You know that they are walking in the kingdom of God when you hear them talk like that. You see, that's why we must rejoice in the Lord, Paul says. That's why we must rejoice in the Lord. It's a command. That's our basis for it. 
that we rejoice in the Lord. That's where it becomes pervasive. Again, Willard explains, our part in living in the kingdom is to keep Christ as fully present as we can and to thank God for his grace in helping us where we can't. We rejoice in the Lord. It's something for us to do, Paul says. It doesn't just land on our head from outer space. Seems odd that Paul would have to command us to be joyful, doesn't it? But look around. Do you see joy among Christians very often? Do you see it on their face? That reminds me of a story Chuck Swindoll once told about a lady at a supermarket near his church who was at the checkout hurriedly transferring her items from the cart to the counter. Behind her waited a man neatly dressed in a gray suit, very sober-looking guy, straight and unemotional. As the woman caught sight of him, she said, Excuse me, sir, but are you a minister? The man replied, No, I've just been sick for a couple of weeks. How real do we think the kingdom of God is? Do we, do we seek to live as if it is true now in our lives? Because it is. If we have true joy in the Lord, it's going to show. Turn back to Proverbs chapter 15, verse 13. Well, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read them to you. Proverbs 15, 13 says, A joyful heart makes a cheerful face, but when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. A joyful heart makes a cheerful face. You should see you right now. I say that a lot from up here. <laughs> a joyful heart makes a cheerful face. Verse 15 of chapter uh, 15. Verse 15 says, All the days of the afflicted are bad, but a cheerful heart has a continual feast. You know people like that? It's like they're feasting all the time. It's like life's one big party. Well, you know that life's not one big party. When people rejoice in the Lord, you can see their stability, can't you? Chapter 17, verse 22. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. And here's one of my favorite verses of Scripture. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Verse 1, it says, Who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. Isn't that a great verse? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. Where does a man get his wisdom from? God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it causes his stern face to beam. You know, it's very telling that Mother Teresa of Calcutta trained the people who worked with her, and she would not retain anyone who did not smile. They had to smile. Now, you can make that a life-crushing legalism, a frozen smile, you know, those kind of smiles. Christians aren't to be smile machines. But she, of course, did not mean that. She meant a genuine smile that comes from the realization of the goodness of God where even if you have just been dragged in off the street and you are dying, you are dying in the arms of love. You see? That's the kingdom of God at work. Listen, Jesus wept. Jesus grieved. And as Christ followers, we are not immune, nor are we insensitive to sorrow or stress or the raging storms of life. Yet we are not to be incapacitated by them. In other words, Paul is saying, celebrate God all day, every day. Revel in Him. That's how the message translates Philippians 4. Verse 4. Paul says, and quite emphatically, be joyful. That's the first command. And the second command 
isn't any easier for us to understand or to take. You know what the second one is? Show patience. Oh, great. First, telling us to be joyful in the midst of our circumstances that are just chaotic. And then you tell us to show patience. Look at verse 5, Philippians 4. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Some translations translate that forbearance. Truthfully, true joy may not always be seen, but the way that we react to others when we're going through hard times will definitely be noticed. Is that right? The word translated forbearance here, or your gentle spirit, is very, very difficult to fully describe in our English language with a single word. It can be explained by terms like patience or lenience or yielding, gentleness, kindness. But they all fall just a little bit short of trying to get a full picture of what Paul's saying here. Basically, this is what the words refer to. It refers to the ability to submit to injustice and disgrace without hatred or malice. Okay? That's what Paul says when he says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Is that the American way? Is that the human way? The ability to submit to injustice and disgrace without hatred or malice? See, it's this willingness to yield one's personal rights and to show consideration toward others. Now, that might be easy when things are going okay. But what about when your life is tanking? How easy is it then? What about when you're feeling lousy and the kids are making demands on you? What about when you're feeling stressed out and there's a pile of work in front of you and your son wants you to read him a bedtime story? You see, we snap at our spouses and our children and our friends and those who are closest to us. Paul says that our attitude should be different than that. It should actually be more like Job's when in one single day he lost everything that he had and in the worst case scenario of tragedy I have ever seen described, Job responded how? With worship. With worship. Turn to Job chapter 1. Let me remind, refresh your memory. Job chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. After the houses got knocked down and he lost all his children, he lost everything except for his wife. And Job arose in verse 20 and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and he, say it, worshipped. He worshipped. And he said this, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. That's forbearance. That's a picture of it. Listen, Let me pass on some great insight to you from another pastor, which clarifies what the Scripture is teaching here in Philippians 4. God is not glorified when you act happy about horrific things. That's what we might call unreasonable theology. Unreasonable theology. He's glorified when in the deepest possible pain that you experience in your life, you still find a way to say, I trust you, God. Help me. That's what Paul's talking about. Christ was the ultimate example of this. He experienced hell on earth, yet he did not open his mouth to revile or to complain or to wine. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. We read these words. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? 
But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but, here it is, kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Trust, trust in God and seek God's help. That's our example. And who are we to show that kind of patience to? Who are we to show that kind of patience to? Not just family, in the examples that I just said. Not just friends, and certainly not just Christians. But look at what Paul says in Philippians 4. Let your gentle spirit be known. What's it say? Somebody read it. To all men. To all men. To all people. That means the unchurched. The unconvinced, our enemies, the bill collector hounding you, the irritating boss that never satisfied with your work, the guy that just wrecked your car and has no insurance, and even to the atheist or to the terrorist that persecutes your faith. Why are we to show kindness and gentleness and patience toward them? One reason, Paul says it right here in this verse. There's a lot packed into verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known. To who? To all men. Why? Say it. The Lord is near. One reason. The Lord is near. The kingdom of God is present. Jesus calls us to make seeking the kingdom of God a priority in our lives. As someone has put it, to seek the kingdom of God is to look for it to be present, for it to be an action, and then to identify yourself with that action. Find out what God is doing where you are and identify with it. Because God's kingdom is in action. It's God reigning. It's what God is doing where we are and with whom we are 24-7. Yes? Ask yourself this question whenever you're in a situation. What is God doing right now where I am face-to-face with this individual? I'm asking that question now. What are you doing, God, in this moment right now where I am face-to-face with all these people. See, if Christ is in us, guess what we are? Somebody said this morning, I think it was my daughter may have even said something, or somebody said something from the stage here, that we are light bearers, right? Well, the Bible says something even more specific than that. It says that if Christ is in us, we are kingdom bearers. We are bearers of the kingdom. When Jesus sent out his disciples in Luke chapter 10, I think it was, he said to them, you go and do these things and tell people that the kingdom of God has come near to them. Guess who that referred to? The disciples. The kingdom of God was within them and when they interacted with people, the kingdom of God was coming near to those people. When you and I interact with somebody on the street, the kingdom of God has come near to them. Why? Because Christ is in us. And if Christ is in us, we are bearers of this kingdom. We can rejoice in that and exhibit a whole lot more patience and gentleness and kindness and let it be known to all men. That's the only power that we have to do that. It's not about whipping our minds up into a place where we can be patient. Because you know as well as I do, the more we try to be patient, the more impatient we become. Because we are impatient with our lack of patience. And we, we do this not just because he's near us by his presence in us, but especially because of the nearness of his return. The Lord is near. He's right at the door. He could come back at any time. Amen? 
I think that's a big part of what Paul's trying to get at here. The next time you're acting like a spoiled brat because your circumstances aren't what you want them to be, ask yourself two questions. Number one, would I act this way if Jesus were right here watching me now? Because he is. And number two, would I want him to come back right now to get me and catch me in the middle of this statement? Because he might. So, Paul says, be joyful, show patience, and then he says another command, don't worry. Stop worrying. Look at verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. You know what the Greek word means for nothing? Nothing. Nada. Nothing. Don't worry about anything. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's not advocating that we live carelessly or irresponsibly, not being legitimately concerned about what's important. He's really getting at the heart of where we all are, isn't he? Too many of us worry about things that don't even matter to us, or don't even matter. I shouldn't say to us. They matter to us. Or they aren't even there, or they're things we can't do anything about. Dr. Walter Cavert reported a survey on worry indicating that only 8% of the things people worried about were legitimate matters of concern. You believe that? You warriors out there? The other 92% of what people worry about were either imaginary, they never happened, or involved matters over which people had absolutely no control over. Anyway. And the Greek word here for anxious literally means dividing the mind. The English word worry is rooted in a German word which means to choke or to strangle. And that's exactly what worry does, isn't it? It tears our minds off of the things that are stable like Jesus and his kingdom and it strangles our faith. Corey ten Boom once said that worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. You know what worry does? Worry drains us. How many know that? Paul says be anxious for nothing. In other words, don't worry about anything. Not even one thing. That's the literal meaning. And Jesus drove this point home on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. You might want to turn there for this one. Matthew chapter 6, you probably are familiar with this passage, beginning in verse 25, going all the way down to, to verse 34. Jesus says, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried. Don't be anxious about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink, not for your body as to what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they are? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil. They do not spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field and is alive today, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You know who he was speaking to. He wasn't speaking to people like us. He was speaking to people who had no food and had no clothes. Don't worry, he says then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek for all of these things, and yet your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But here's the kicker. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Seek first his kingdom where Christ is. The principle is basically this. The presence of worry or anxiety, total anxiousness in a believer's life indicates an absence of faith in the believer's heart. Without faith in God, there is no peace of mind. 
no matter how you cut it. Matt Chandler writes, he says, what would you have to be anxious about anyway? He's writing to Christians. There's not a square inch of all of creation in which God isn't present and sovereign. Is that right? You believe that? Then seek his kingdom first and you won't worry about the other stuff. See, if we could get our heads out of our heads, this idea that the future is something God simply knows and get into our heads, the idea that the future is a place where God already is. And that he doesn't just know about the past and sees the present and know about the future, but that he stands outside of time and space and reigns over all of it sovereignly, simultaneously, what in the world would we be anxious about? If you will be honest about your life, you will have to admit, you will admit that God has never failed you, has he? He has never failed you. He has never let you down. He may not have always given you what you wanted or orchestrated your life according to your desires or taken your advisement on his providential care for you. But when it comes right down to it, he has never, ever failed us, has he? You may have felt distant from God at times. I have. But he's never abandoned us. He has never left us or forsaken us. You have never been without God's love or his sovereign care. Not one second of your life. So even if that phone rings and the worst possible news is on the other end, what do we have to be anxious about? Now understand fear. I understand pain, but that's not the same thing as worry. Fear is legitimate for the vulnerable. And pain is a natural consequence of being mortal. But worry is a choice that we make in distrust. Worry is a choice made in distrust. And it never helps, does it? Has, has your worry ever helped you? Has it ever helped the situation even once? Worry contributes nothing to the problems that we're facing. It only causes more problems. Our great need, writes Dallas Willard again, is to see our place in Christ's world, in his kingdom, and to know that everything is taken care of. We don't have a thing to worry about. But my goodness, you're thinking all the terrible things that happen in the world. And you say, boy, I've got plenty to worry about. All these people in the Middle East, they have plenty to worry about. He says, and I understand that. But that's not the solution. The solution is to acknowledge the presence of the kingdom in the most awful of events. You might ask, where was God in Auschwitz? We just, we just recognized 70 years just a few days ago. Where was God in Auschwitz? God was in Auschwitz. Why didn't he do what we think he should have done? Well, that's a question to which I don't have an answer, but there is meaning to human history, including Auschwitz. God is over all, and he will see to it that what is good and what is right is done in the end. And you always have to add the larger picture. And that's hard. That's really hard. And it's not satisfying to our human nature. Sometimes I get anxious. Sometimes I worry. I have anxiety. I know some women who would readily admit that their full-time job is worry. It's hard not to worry in this world. But that's the whole point. We are part of another world, aren't we? One in which good and perfect outcome is guaranteed by a good and perfect sovereign who never lets us out of his sight and from whose protective hand no one can pluck us. But God's honest with us here. The command to be anxious for nothing doesn't come without the sweat of faith. Paul just doesn't end there. He says, stop worrying. Be joyful. 
show patience, don't worry. No, there's some sweat involved, some holy sweat. Paul says, or God says through Paul, instead of worrying, keep praying. Keep praying. Look at Philippians chapter 4 again. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. See, the cure for worry is what? Prayer. Prayer is the discipline. Prayer is the exercise. Prayer is the P90X of faith. Pray unceasingly, Paul told the Thessalonians. Jesus showed the disciples in Luke chapter 18 and verse 1 that at all times they ought to pray and, and what? Not lose heart. In short, God says, don't worry about anything. Pray about everything all the time. All the time. How many of you have ever seen pictures of the eye of a hurricane? I have this memory burned into my, into my head. As a child in school, we saw a short film shot from the cockpit of a plane flying through a hurricane into the eye. It was an incredible thing, and I've always remembered it. At first, you couldn't see a thing except turbulence and chaos, and then bang, just like a veil was being pulled away, there was complete calm, sunshine, blue sky even. That oasis of peace, the eye of the storm, was completely surrounded by forces that were wreaking havoc and destruction. Yet in the midst of all of that, there was peace. My friends, if you don't take anything away from it today other than this, take this. Jesus is the eye of the storm. In the midst of the raging unrest, there is peace in the eye. Prayer flies us into the eye. Get it? I love this idea. Thanks to a book I recently read, it helps me think of it like this. In reality, worry and prayer are of the same essence. Did you ever think about that? Worry and prayer, same essence. They are both a rehearsing of circumstances, a mulling over, a kind of mental and emotional chewing on something. But in worry, there is no connection, no traction, no relational receiver. It's like spinning our wheels. Worry is like traveling in a rocking chair. Get that in your mind, right? You're just going back and forth, getting sick. But when we pray, you know what we're doing? We're worrying at God. Remember that phrase. Okay? I love it. We're worrying at God. We're directing it somewhere. We take those anxieties and direct them Godward. We take them to him. And of utmost importance, we hand them over to him. We leave them with him. Here's an idea. Novel idea for you. Instead of worrying, pray and let God worry. He's got a lot to worry about, and he can handle it. That's not original with me, by the way. Martin Luther said that. Why not pray and let God worry? Truth be known, if we didn't worry, there would be this huge gap left in our minds and our attitudes. Paul says that we should fill that gap with the multifaceted aspects of prayer. Paul uses a number of words here, each referring to different aspects of prayers that we should be praying. The first word for prayer here is simply referring to general prayer. We're bringing our fears and our insecurities and our anxieties to God. We're turning to Him in thoughts and in feelings, bringing Him into the equation. You know what it is? It's a worshipful attitude of mind. That's what the first word for prayer means. It includes adoration, recognizing him as the only one who can really do something about our situation. We humbly admit that we are small in comparison to his infinite wisdom and creativity. And we rehearse his attributes and realize all of a sudden that our minds are being drawn into the fact that God is over all things and nothing is impossible with him. And that's where it starts. That's where the peace 
starts coming in. And the next thing Paul says is supplication. Simply put, these are the help me God prayers. We're laying it out. Our needs, our fears, our hopes, our inability to solve the issue. The fact that we need God to step in and take over in very specific ways. That's what supplication refers to. Then there's the aspect of prayer that we tend to forget. This other thing that Paul says about prayer. Yet it is so essential. Paul says we need to pray with thanksgiving. When we're struggling, we often forget to thank God for the times he has delivered us, for the fact that he can deliver us and will in one way or another, and that whatever way it is that he delivers us, it is going to be for our good. You see, God is good all the time. It's not just a stupid little saying that we say and everybody repeats like a bunch of robots. God is good all the time. It's really an acknowledgement that he is good no matter what. Always in everything. We can pray to him with thanksgiving. We must pray to him with thanksgiving. If we cannot give him thanks, we will not know his peace if we cannot give him thanks we will not know his peace as someone recently put it thanksgiving and worry cannot occupy the same space you ever try that I'm really worried about this thank you God it doesn't work right? thanksgiving here's another good one that you can remember today thanksgiving is worry's kryptonite You can't worry if you're giving thanks. It totally annihilates it. Thanksgiving annihilates worry. The fact is, when it's all said and done, we realize that God has a purpose for everything that happens in our lives, and it's always for our good. And and so, in, in everything, we can give him thanks. Not for everything, but in everything. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18 says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Interesting how he writes to the Thessalonians the same things he writes to the Philippians, which is the same things he writes to the Colossians. It's this continuity of life in the Scripture, isn't there? I've always loved Anne Lamott's simple statement about prayer. She says, the two greatest prayers I know are Help me, help me, help me. And thank you, thank you, thank you. And that's true. When anxiety comes knocking on the door of our hearts and minds and we let prayer answer that door with adoration and supplication, with thanksgiving, when we make our deepest requests known to God and that kind of attitude there reaps an effect. Remember earlier I said there's a cause and effect relationship? The effect is what Paul says right here. Verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's, It's a peace of mind that blows away all human understanding. See, our continuing problem, however, is that when we're experiencing stormy times, we look everywhere else for peace, don't we? We make our requests known to the church. We make our requests known to our friends, our neighbors, everybody else first. And we forget that God should be our first resort, not our last. Or we look for peace in a bottle of wine, or a handful of pills, or in a binge night on Netflix, or a screenshot of porn. We think that if we can just get away from all of our stress for a little while, and so we raid the refrigerator, or worse yet, we run into the arms of another man or another woman, other than our spouse. See, we look for it in all the wrong places, and we wonder why there's no peace in our lives. 
World leaders try to find it through political negotiations, and they're looking for it everywhere, but where it really resides. William M. Peck said, there will be no peace as long as God remains unseated at the conference table. And that includes our own lives as well as political life. It's not man's idea of peace that we need. That is a flash in the pan. It gives you a quick fix, and then it fades. We need a peace that originates with God, a peace that goes deep and lingers long, and long after the initial flares of good feelings have burned away. And where does that peace come from? It comes from having a vibrant, personal, real relationship with Jesus Christ. D.L. Moody once commented that a great many people are trying to make peace, but that has already been done. It's finished. God has not left it for us to do. All we have to do is enter into it. Christ has already made peace with God, and he's given us the power and capacity to make peace with each other and with ourselves. See, maintaining the right attitude brings the peace of God to guard us like a sentry on watch. The peace of God gives us a settled spirit and a settled mind. It prevents anxieties from growing within and doubts from entering from without. But too often, that's where we end with an attitude. Paul doesn't end it there. It's not enough to maintain the right attitude, but as we go further, we must... must manifest the right actions. And that's what we're going to cover next time, the rest of this passage. Years ago, there was a contest held in which artists were given an invitation to paint a picture of peace. The entries were eventually narrowed down to two. The first artist had interpreted perfect peace by painting a quiet lake cradled high in the lonely mountains. The second artist, however, painted something different. He painted a thundering waterfall with the branch of a birch tree bending over the foam. And on the fork of that limb, wet with spray, sat a robin undisturbed in her nest. Undisturbed. Many of us would love to be able to identify with that picture. Our lives may be filled with stress and anxiety that doesn't look like it's going to easily go away. But in applying what God's Word has to say today about genuine joy and a relationship with Christ and developing an attitude of prayer, you know what? We can gain an unshakable calm, even in the middle of the storm. 